0: Please uh, join me in prayer. Lord God, we truly gather today to praise you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Well, I want to thank you all for being here today. I know a lot of people are on vacation, and it's a busy time, but it's always a busy time. Uh, if you're a visitor uh, please understand that I'm not I'm not the main guy here I'm just the the, the backup and uh, I we try to talk once a month at least in the last few months about um, integrating our body and our faith with everyday life Uh, now in that process uh, teachers are generally under a delusion that people remember what they say. Okay, uh, unless you you know you go over the notes again on your own, or you, you study it in your small group, or you listen to it on the website, you know after it's up after a couple of days, you know you're probably not going to remember a whole lot. As an example. Uh, In my message five weeks ago, I asked everybody at the end after talking about leadership to remember four key words, okay? Raise your hand if you remember those four words. You see? (laughs) Not that I would have remembered them either, but nonetheless, it's difficult. Um, In Mike's message four weeks ago, in, in talking about, you know, praying... He reminded us that we should be praying for daily bread, for things that matter today. But today, I want to ask you to focus on the bigger picture, getting a long-term perspective. In Philippians 3, Paul explains this forward-looking approach when he warns the church not to rest on their laurels and to put no confidence in the flesh, even though he himself had reason to have confidence in his status and his accomplishment. Paul counts those things as loss for the sake of Christ. Nothing but rubbish so that he may gain Christ. Instead, he says this, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Last week, Bill Bider Uh, in his message about what happens after we die, uh, mentioned a great preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards who was used by God to bring about the great awakening in America. When we look at the generations of descendants from John Edwards, here's what we find. Thirteen college presidents, sixty-five college professors, three United States senators, 30 judges, 60 physicians, 75 army and navy officers, 100 preachers and missionaries, 60 authors of prominence, one vice president of the United States, 80 public officials in other capacities, 295 college graduates, among whom were governors of states and ministers to foreign countries. Now there were a few black sheep in his heritage, uh, his progeny included a hundred lawyers. <laughs> but this remarkable heritage shows that Jonathan Edwards was blessed and blessed many future generations because he was reaching forward to what lies ahead. Today we're going to focus on the word generations. Now, if our youngest Ben has children at the age that Christy and I were when we had him. Christy and I will be pushing a hundred. Now, if I'm still breathing, I got serious doubt as to whether I'm going to be able to recognize those children, those grandchildren. Let me ask a question. Does anything we say, anything we do, have any effect? on on our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. If you can remember only one thing about this message today, I implore you, I beg you, try to remember the importance of our impact on generations that come in the future, including those who you will never know." The word generation has a pretty simple etymology. It comes from the word gen. Something produced. A thing that produces or causes or that from which future things come. And it's related to words that mean born of, produced by, or birth. So we get several words like gene, uh, generate, generator, Generous genealogy,
1: Genesis.
0: You get the message. A generation is usually considered to be a group associated by age, loosely described as being separated by 30 or 40 years. Okay? It's not an airtight concept, but you understand what we're talking about. Now, God's method of discipleship and our responsibility is to pass on to others and succeeding generations the knowledge of God and to impart a vision for God's redemptive plan. The first time that God spoke to his people on this matter was in Deuteronomy 6. Somewhat of a familiar passage, but if you'll turn there, uh, it's important that we get this concept down. There, starting in, in verse 1, it says, Now this is the commandment, The statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson, you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. and You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, all the time. Now those four key words, a little review here, See a little thing on, the, on your study sheet. It says, God's redemptive plan is accomplished over generations through heart level relationships, through day to day routine. That's the concept we're going to try to deal with over the next couple of months. Lord willing. So, Deuteronomy 6, the passage we just read, teaches this. Some parents home school, but all parents home educate, in the sense that by teaching or leading by example, as both positional and relational leaders, all the time, we are passing something on to our children. This passage explains what God's people are supposed to be passing on. However, whether parents obey God's command or not, we are always educating and imprinting a pattern upon our children. Even if the lesson is how to be angry or to smoke, or to abuse substances or other members of the household. They're learning all the time from us. Christian home education in this sense has as its goal the passing on of a God-honoring heritage from, from one generation to the next, training children to train their children. Young people, you should be motivated to seek to understand why your parents do what they do because how they train you is going to largely influence how you train your children. Let's take a quick look at God's plan from the beginning to redeem his people and creation in general. Man was created to glorify God And to enjoy him forever. So mankind is first presented as without sin and in harmony with God. In Genesis 1, starting in verse 28, it says, God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In short, to rule over everything on earth that has life, and I'll take care of you in this perfect and beautiful garden. But this very young couple, does not know a good thing when it's handed to them and so they promptly blow it through sin but thankfully we know the rest of the story victory will come through generations of children and one man would come from the seed of a woman and achieve the victory over sin the man Jesus Christ Christians therefore are to continue God's work after Christ and in his spirit To accomplish this, the spiritual training of children is an essential part of God's redemptive plan. Children carry out that redemptive legacy of their parents to their own children. In this first household of Adam and Eve, God's structure to bring redemption to man was established. Our households need the assistance of church relationships, body relationships, body integration to pass God's redemptive plan onto their children and to future generations. So let's take a look at God's work in and through various households and generations to see how this works. After the garden, things kind of degenerated over time and the world was corrupted to the point that God pretty much had to clean house. God chose Noah's household to redeem and sustain life so that the human race could continue his redemptive work. So Noah and his children built the ark and filled it with all the genes necessary to sustain life for all future generations. And in doing so, he became the second of only two men to be the common ancestor of all of us. The message we get here is that God is holy and just. So there's a punishment for sin. However, God is merciful to provide a way to sustain life and a way to eternal life. Noah's household pointed to the redeeming work of Christ. Abraham was the father of many nations. And even though childless and his wife well beyond childbearing years, God opened her womb. God not only tested Abraham's faith with the long wait for a son, but then the seemingly incomprehensible command or instruction to sacrifice that son Isaac. Again, God provided a beautiful picture of our own redemption. The ram in the thicket points to the sacrifice of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, for our sins. In addition, we learn from Abraham that, one, God keeps his promises, even when it seems impossible. Two, he will accomplish his work in his time. Three, we would be wise to wait on God, because it's really pretty futile to try to manipulate him when his timetable does not match ours. And finally, faith is central to our relationship with God. Next, God worked through Joseph's household to save his own people and the unbelieving Egyptians from famine and work out his purposes despite man's sin. Joseph gives a tremendous demonstration of character uh, when in Potiphar's home. We see a great picture then, ultimately, of forgiveness, reconciliation, and Restoration within his own household with his brothers who had betrayed him so much. God used the faith of the parents of Moses to save his people in the face of losing their hidden son to Pharaoh's edict. They trusted God by sending Moses down the Nile in a basket that he might survive. God blessed that faith to protect Moses and threw in the additional benefit that his mother would be able to raise him anyway. Moses then leads Israel to the promised land as a symbol of our spiritual journey from slavery to sin to freedom in Christ. Neither Being neither a natural leader nor eloquent, Moses receives the word of God to speak to Pharaoh. Then he's directed by a cloud and fire and his character to lead a stubborn and fickle lot of people in the wilderness. This demonstrates to us that we as fathers don't have to be great speakers or possess natural abilities to lead our households. Rather, we simply need to be humble and allow God to direct us in leading our families to maturity. Joshua was known for his courage from which we can infer that his parents reared him in the fear of the Lord. And this courage and faith extended to his own household when he said, as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. And I think it's probably time that all of us took that nice saying that's probably on our walls in a frame and applied it to our own households and training future generations God worked through even the generations of a childless Moabite widow to carry out his plans. Naomi uh, flees to Moab with her husband and her sons to escape the famine. Then hubby and sons die and, and uh, after marrying, and Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. But Ruth, the Moabite, decides to stick with Naomi. They go back to Bethlehem. God puts Ruth together with Boaz and their son, Obed, fathers Jesse, who fathers David and generations down the line, Joseph is their descendant, the father who raised Jesus. The Old Testament ends with the prophet Malachi warning that the prophet Elijah will come before the coming of the Lord and, quote, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Four hundred years later, the New Testament opens with a story in Luke 1 of Zacharias and Elizabeth, a righteous couple who had prayed for years for a child, but none came. Now advanced in years, they've pretty much given up that hope. But they remained faithful. An angel comes to Zacharias while ministering in the temple and announcing that they will have a son, who we know as John the Baptist. And he says of this child, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner to him, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You know, there's really nothing new under the sun. Whether 2,000 years ago or today, God desires a, a connection between generations. Much of what's wrong with our society today stems from absent, poor, or abusive fathers. And it is exciting to see in this body fathers becoming aware of their failures, repenting, and becoming the loving, strong, servant leaders their households desire. In Acts 2, Peter explains to the Jews how God promised to place David's descendants on the throne. David himself looked forward and spoke of the resurrection of the very man the Jews had nailed to the cross. At at this, the Jews were pierced in their hearts, and they pleaded, What shall we do? And Peter said, Repent! Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this wicked generation. The point here is that repentance was called for in the context of an appeal to future generations. That day, 3,000 souls were saved as a result. God worked through households and in the hearts of those early church members to pull them together. Luke records that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who would be saved. If the household heads here start with repentance for our complacency and our outright disobedience, and the church focuses more on reaching and discipling households as much as possible, rather than just individuals, we just might get a glimpse of what the church experienced in Acts chapter 2. I don't know if all of you remember, but there's an old hymn called Faith of Our Fathers. Remembering our heritage is a practice which is largely lost in our time. But in Acts 3, Peter heals a lame beggar outside the temple gate who then jumps up and rejoices and he kind of creates a scene. And as the Jewish observers gather, Peter explains that It is God who healed the beggar. He said, men of Israel, why are you so amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. And then in verse 16, and on the basis of faith in his name, It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. You see, Peter sought to demonstrate that Jesus was God's son by connecting him all the way back to Abraham, whom the Jews respected. In Acts 6, Stephen has this powerful ministry but it brings false accusations. And in his Acts 7 defense, Stephen eloquently reminds the Jews of God's faithfulness over the generations, starting with the promise of Abraham. He references father or fathers 18 times in the 52 verses of his defense to highlight that generations are central to God's redemptive plan. Now, today, we just don't think like that anymore. Perhaps you have have had godly parents or other ancestors, or perhaps the generations of faith will start with you. Regardless, we must pass it on to our children and their children and so on so that they will know they are worshiping and serving the God of God of our fathers and this is not just a guy thing Timothy of course is a great New Testament hero Paul wrote that he remembered Timothy's sincere faith which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice there's no mention of Tim's father so the clear message here is that that faith was passed down through his grandmother to his mother to Timothy The roles of generations in redemptive history is, frankly, unquestionable. God clearly uses generations, and if we can wrap our minds around this, it will change how we view households and ministries. So I want to talk about certain key truths that we've got to understand and apply if we are to equip future generations, and these should be on the back of your sheet. The first one is amazingly God loves children and that children are essential and strategic may seem self-evident but one of the hardest realities for modern families to accept is that God chooses to open and close wombs we cannot take children for granted and he does this for his purposes. It seems that some women conceive just by their husbands looking at them, while others, other godly women, yearn for the blessing for years. We see in scripture Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Manoah, who was Samson's mom, and Elizabeth in the New Testament were all barren women, but God opened their wombs for specific purposes. We also see when his handlers tried to keep grubby little fingers away from the creator of the universe, Jesus indignantly rebuked those men by saying, suffer the little children to come unto me. And forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Verily I say to you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And Jesus took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and he blessed them. You see, God loves children, and they are strategic to his plan. Does the church in general love children in the same way? Well, if you look around here, you'll see some pretty good evidence that the people in this church do. But I have a suspicion that this church is not typical of most American evangelical churches. But beyond that basic love of children, do we see children as leaders of the next generation? of churches, and of households? Are we preparing them to live out their faith in the face of ridicule and persecution? Do they know basic doctrine? Are they willing to stand alone for their convictions? Do they have consistent examples to emulate for strong marriages and for parenting their own? These are fairly important questions. Second point is that dads, we got to be leaders. It is God's design for fathers to lead their households and for older, experienced, and wiser fathers to lead generations. Given our impact on the generations to come, it is vital that men be discipled and trained to become leaders. We can see a clear contrast in leadership between the two men in the Old Testament, Abraham and Lot. Lot lived with Abraham until they went their separate ways, with Lot pitching his tent towards Sodom, and you know the rest of the history. Lot lost the hearts of his wife and his daughters to carnality. Abraham, on the other hand, while not perfect, had been faithful in the test of sacrificing his son. Because of his faithfulness, Isaac, his son, trusted his dad and God's promises. Imagine being Isaac, lying on the altar, watching your own father's hand with a knife raised above you. But Abraham knew that God had promised to bring about a great nation through Isaac and the vision of succeeding generations. So, in the face of seemingly incomprehensible instructions, he submitted, but was greatly rewarded for his faith. Lot, on the other hand, never really sought God's direction. His family became acculturated uh, by Sodom's wickedness, but at the same time, Abe set the example of faithfulness, purpose, and imparting a vision to future generations that we as imperfect fathers, should follow. In Genesis 18, it says this, starting in verse 19. For I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he may command his children and his house, household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And then later in Genesis 26, we see the fruit of Abe's faithfulness through his own son. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father, Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the, Lord, of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, how does a father lead? Well, in many ways. But if to have any hope of passing on this vision of love of God and obeying we must go back to the emphatic command of Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, where it says, you, 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 not the pastor, not the Sunday school teacher, not the youth leader, not the Christian school teacher, you shall teach my commands diligently, to your sons. And she'll talk of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you rise up and when you lie down. Last week, Bill taught that all believers will face the judgment seat of Christ for a determination of rewards in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says, For we must appear all before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, I don't know how this is going to look, but I wouldn't be surprised if it involves like a giant screen on a cloud the size of a football field that replays our whole lives in front of everybody. Uh, Now, you can say, if we got to watch everybody's movie, that's going to take a long time. But don't worry, because you've got lots of time. Now, if that's true, dads, how much time in our life replay will be seen showing us spending time day-to-day imparting the vision of love and redemption to our children. How much? In fact, uh, at Lion and Lamb, we would like to put on a workshop for men. There's a little bit of an announcement here and a request. uh, On how to lead devotions. And so, I have a special request of moms and kids... If you know anybody who can do that really well, I'd like to hear about it. Would you please tell me? Because we need to put together a panel. Okay? The next point is that God forgives, but. Okay? The Bible tells us God works through imperfect sinners, like you and me, who repent. He forgives and heals and then carries out His plan. Yet, sin has consequences. You know, uh, after bringing down the tablets the first time, Moses had to go back up because he threw them away a second time upon the mount. And when he went up, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations." Generational sin is a real problem. Just as Abraham lied about his wife Sarah, so Isaac lied about his wife, and Jacob's sons lied about lied to him about Joseph. And today we see not just laziness, but alcohol, drug, emotional, physical, and other abuses passed down from one generation to the next. In my family, it The problem was marital infidelity. Each mature believer must take responsibility to break the chain of generational sin through confession before God and our children so that future generations will be redeemed instead of falling. Albeit in a different context, It was Ronald Reagan who said it best. If not now, when? If not us, who? God does show mercy to faithful generations. In Mary's Magnificat, in in Luke 1, she says, And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. But he also judges unfaithful generations. When they were getting ready to cross over to the promised land, the sons of Gad and Reuben thought, you know, maybe we want to stay on this side of the Jordan. But Moses reminded them of what happened when their fathers, everybody except Joshua and Caleb, discouraged Israel from going into the land that God gave. He said in in Numbers 32, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. He made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Now this highlights the importance of equipping our children with a vision to raise up their children with conviction and a mission to reach the lost, a redemptive vision. This starts with dad overcoming generational sin through humbly confessing and dealing with it rather than covering it up. Again, what we do or don't do will affect the descendants, some of whom we will never even meet. Next point I want to talk about is that redemption requires a multi-generational commitment. Major shifts in worldview almost always take several generations. When Karl Marx and later Vladimir Lenin conceptualized their new economic and social order, their goal was to spread it worldwide, but they knew it was not going to happen in their lifetime. It would take many generations for socialism to trample out freedom and eradicate faith in God so that the communist state eventually control all. Two of the keys in this evolution was to use the educational system to indoctrinate children in the core values of communism and to also create at the same time generational dependence upon government. In the 1980s Ronald Reagan essentially stared down the communist world without firing a shot. And at that time, it actually became unpopular, but he did not kill communism. The seeds of socialist concepts were planted in the United States through the progressive policies of Woodrow Wilson, Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt, and then Lyndon Johnson in more recent times. So, post-Reagan, where is the anti-biblical socialist movement today? I don't know what you see, but I see it rising like Godzilla with a vengeance. Take an honest look. The Bible teaches that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Sorry, kids. That's what it says. Yet, today, our government has swelled the welfare rolls to historic levels a majority of of Americans receive some form of government handout and or do not pay any taxes. This makes for a great base of voters. Do you think that those who don't pay taxes really care much about a campaign promise to cut taxes? Think about it. Aren't they going to vote for the people to stay in power who are giving them somebody else's money? In addition, our government-run health care system mandates us to buy something that we may not want to buy. And it mandates that those who value the life violate their own conscience. Finally, make no mistake, there is a gradual but sure and steady attempt to remove Christian faith from our culture by our own government now now think here in the good old US of A Carl and Vladimir would be so proud that's where we are the question I have for you is do you and I, do Christians, have as much commitment and purpose as the socialists and the communists to pass on our worldview to our children and the generations to come? Well, a little practical point here. A very simple thing that you can do to start is go to the polls on Tuesday, August the 7th. That's this Tuesday. Okay? Now, we haven't told you who to vote for. But we've given you all the information you need. Talk about separation of church and state. Our little voter guide is on the back of our prayer calendar. There you go. Uh, Get out and set an example for your children. Uh, Single adults. Get out and do something of significance. Your vote counts. This unpaid, apolitical ad was brought to you by me, and I approve this message. Okay, last point. We must show up. In Proverbs 22, it says, Remove not the ancient landmarks which your fathers have set. The true history of the world, and the U.S. in particular, is dominated by Christians who have improved their cultures for all, including unbelievers. But the failure to pass on our faith to generations, to be a light to the world, to influence our culture, has left the ancient landmarks unguarded. Because Christians have not been largely involved in decision-making positions, the historical revisionists have taken God out of the history books that are used in our schools, effectively removing the ancient landmarks. Now that's why I am blessed to have my children taught American history by Steve Isle this year who will make the lives of godly men and women come to life in their hearts. If we truly care about the lost, we cannot simply sit and watch those who hate God dominate the landscape in education and leadership of the institutions that set all the cultural standards. Remember the words of our Savior in Matthew 5. You, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its savor, wherewith will it be salted? It is from that point forward good for nothing but to be cast out, and trodden underfoot of men. The church must not only save souls, but focus on the bigger picture, redeeming a fallen world by restoring those landmarks, even perhaps becoming those landmarks. Our children must have ingrained in them a sense of purpose, responsibility to carry on this commitment, and then pass it on to their children. I guess there's one more point. Think long-term. You've heard the term, the American dream. It's totally unbiblical. It includes not just home ownership, but a Winnebago with a bumper sticker that says, I'm spending my kid's inheritance. Park somewhere in the elephant graveyards of Florida or Arizona. I'm sorry if I stepped on your plans. But God's plan for seasoned citizens is a little different. He calls us to stay engaged with not only our children, but our grandchildren and anybody else we have the blessing to know. In other words, God wants us to have a long-term perspective, to think generationally without that kind of outlook. Once the kids turn 18 or they leave the home we will simply resign ourselves to a life of nothing significant, of purposeless self-indulgence. Instead of spending our children's inheritance, we should do all we can, using that inheritance if we have to, to present a lasting heritage for generations to come. Winston Churchill's exhortation is apropos here. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Instead, forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. Press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So in closing, I just ask the question, are your grandchildren worth it? Lord God, we give this praise and honor to you. And Lord, I pray that if I have exhorted and and challenged people here, I pray that you would instill in me a greater purpose for my children, my grandchildren, and on. That I would be able to do whatever I can to encourage and exhort them to know you personally, to come to you, to not forget the great works and promises, the great men and women of history. The vision of reaching the lost for you. Father, we pray that you would help all of us, especially the heads of households here and those who will become heads of households, to take your challenge to us, to carry our faith forward to generations to come. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of God. Amen.